From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. This week's Torah portion is Emmar. Emmar is this week's Torah portion, and we have a doozy to study tonight. All right, I want to give you a quick overview of the parasha and tell you what we're going to do. So the Torah portion this week is really divided into two halves. You have this sometimes in Torah portions where you have a theme that is the, you know, kind of a first half theme and a second half theme. So the first half theme of Emar is the, the laws regarding a Kohen's personal sanctity. Okay, so the Torah portion opens up with God telling Moses to tell Aaron and his kids, in other words, this commandment is going to the Kohanim, about who, basically regarding the laws of personal sanctity, of Kedusha, of Tahara, of purity, and not to become impure. Now we know that a person becomes impure through contact with death, so the Torah portion opens up by telling the mitzvah to the Kohanim not to get in contact with a dead body unless it's a very close relative. The Kohen Gadol can get into, cannot even get into contact with a dead body even if it is a close relative. Either way, the point is that the, the opening of the Torah portion deals with the laws of ritual purity regarding a Kohen. First half. Second half of the Torah portion talks about the Jewish holidays. It goes through the calendar, starting with Passover, continuing with the Omer offering and the counting of the Omer, then going into Shavuot, which is coming up in a few weeks, as it were, because the Shavuot is literally the festival of weeks, coming up in a few weeks. Then it gets into Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the Torah portion concludes with a conversation about the holiday of Sukkot. So those are the two major themes. The Kohen and the festivals. That's Emar in a nutshell. I want to focus on an anomaly. We have an anomaly in the second half of the Torah reading. Second half of the Torah reading, as I mentioned, talks about the holidays. Talks about the Jewish festivals, the, 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 the seasonal holidays. And I'll go through them again. We have Passover, the Omer, Offering and the counting of the Omer, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Those are your biblical holidays. That's what you got. Anything else? Purim, Chanukah, Rabbinic. Tu B'Shvat, not even a thing. Biblically, not a thing. Huh? Tu B'Shvat is not a thing. Um, Lagba Omer, not a thing. Again, today it's a thing, but it's not, not a biblical thing. What's, what's wild is that in middle of the conversation about the holidays, so the Torah talks about Pesach, Passover, talks about the Omer offering, talks about the counting of the Omer, talks about Shavuot, before it continues with Rosh Hashanah, it interjects a verse. It interjects, it throws in a section that is, seems completely unrelated to the holidays. 
what, what verse is thrown in. In other words, it's a non-holiday related verse. In middle of the, of the, the holiday uh, discussion, you have a non-holiday verse and mitzvah. What is it? I have you on the edge of your seats, <laughs> right where I want you. What is it? It's a discussion about the agricultural gifts that need to be given to the poor. Let's pull it up. It's in your booklets, okay? If you have a book, if you have a booklet, it's on page 35. I will pull it up on the screen as well for the benefit of everybody on Zoom. Give me a second. Let me get it ready on my, on my, uh, on my screen. It is ready now. Here we go. Well, before we continue, welcome, Paul. Welcome, Mark. It's great to have you guys here. Okay. Sharing the screen. Text number one. Marnine, if you don't mind, if you're up to it, please read the verse that doesn't belong. Now, God forbid for me to say that, but I mean the verse that doesn't seem like it should belong. Take it away. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not completely remove the corner of your field during your harvesting, and you shall not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. Rather, you shall leave these for the poor person and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Thank you. So again, the verse itself, okay, makes sense. It's not like, it's not too wild. It's about the placement. It's about the placement. That's going to be the that's going to be the sticky situation over here. But let's focus on before we get back to the question of placement, let's focus on what the verse actually says. This verse is talking about the mitzvahs, the three mitzvahs, three mitzvot that are relevant to someone who owned land in ancient Israel. If you own land, if you own farmland and you were getting crops, the Torah says if you're farming, you have three mitzvah obligations that fall under the category of essentially chesed, tzedakah, giving to the poor. What are they? So number one, we have peah. What is peah? Peah means corner, right? Like peyot, right? The corner. What is a corner? The corner in this context means that when you harvest, again, the verse says, when you harvest, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not completely remove the corner of your field during your harvesting. In other words, when you're using your, how do you pronounce it? Scythe? Sickle. Huh? Sickle. Sickle. Yeah, but it's a different one. Scythe. Yeah, the other one. Yeah. So you're like, right? You're like cutting down. You're the, the wheat or whatever it is. You get to the edge of the field. Stop. Stop. Leave some of the edge for those in need. Don't cut everything down. That's number one. Next. All the time. All the time, yeah. Excellent question. So, Gazan, the conversation, Marnie's asking, all four corners, one corner? Good. Um, essentially, it's the edges of the field. Yeah, the edges of the field, right? It's not just one corner. And as far as the minimum or maximum, it's not defined. I mean, there is, a, there is some sort of guidance in the Talmud. But really, the Torah is not specific about exactly how much you're supposed to leave. But you're supposed to leave something, something decent, but it doesn't have to be overwhelming either. The point is, you leave a little bit for someone in need. And then it says, the next obligation here, you shall not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. Which means, if things fall to the ground, right? If, if some of the uh, bundles or whatever, sheaves, fall to the ground, don't pick them up. If one or two fall to the ground, I mean, if the whole, the whole 
you know, truckload falls, you pick it up. But if one or two fall to the ground, you leave it for anyone who wants to come and eat. Anyone who doesn't have food, they can come and eat. Um, and then there's one more mitzvah that's not mentioned here, which is called shikha, which means that if you are taking bundles from the field, you've made bundles and you're taking from the field into the house or into whatever, the storehouse, and you leave some behind, and then later on you remember, ah, I think I left some in the field, you don't go back to pick them up, you don't go back to get them, you leave them where they are. So leket shechapeya, whether they fall to the ground, whether you forgot them, or whether it's the corner of the field, leave it to the poor, leave it for the stranger. This is incredible. You want a field, the field is yours, right? Zaygezunt, it's yours, welcome to capitalism, mazel tov, you have land, you have money, you have food, it's great. Don't forget about someone who is in need. Imagine if we would tell this to restaurants. Imagine. Imagine. If we tell restaurants. You have to, when you make food, yeah, you have to leave some of the food and have it somewhere where anyone can walk in and eat it. Right? That would be the concept. That would be the concept. Right? When you make, I'm just going to go fast food for a second. Apologies. Right? When you make fries, yeah, in the thing, you put it into the plate, yeah, leave some. Right? Don't put them all. Leave some. And have a collection for those that are in need, right? If you put down a plate in the kitchen, you go out and you, can, you forget the plate, whatever, leave it. That's for the poor or for the needy. That would be the equivalent, right? That would be the equivalent. It's like the corner of the field, what you forgot, what you dropped. I wouldn't recommend that in a restaurant, whatever you dropped, give away. That's why I skipped that one. Notice, intentionally. But nonetheless, the point would be to think about how we can benefit others. It's a beautiful mitzvah. There's only one problem. That's how I started the class today. The one problem is, it doesn't make sense to be found where it is. The other problem is, y'all don't have that context in your books or in your handout. If, you ha if we had a chumash, we were studying from a chumash, like, like back in the day, right? So I would be able to show you the verses. We talk about Pesach and the Omer and Shavuot and soon Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and right in the middle. It's, oh, by the way, if you have a field... Don't cut, don't, don't harvest the corners of the field. If you, if you drop something, don't go, don't go and pick it up. It's like, and what holiday does this belong to? Like, what, what, what are we talking about? Like, what's the, what's the connection right now? Like, how did that, that's a great law. Trust me, let's keep it in the book. But can we, like, move it somewhere else where it makes more sense? Like, laws of farmers, laws of the land? Why is it in the section of laws regarding the holidays. This is not just my question. It's not just my question. This is a question that the commentaries ask. But before we get into the commentaries, let's look and see how Rambam, Maimonides, describes the mitzvah, the agricultural mitzvah of peya and leket and shicha, these three mitzvahs. Let's see how Rambam, Maimonides, canonizes them. Yes, Adina Malka. Like in the Passover Seder, like we say, you know, all the people that are hungry would that they could come and eat with us. I like this. Good idea. Yeah. I like so what you're saying. As we think about the holidays, we need to remind ourselves, don't only think about yourself. Right? As we think about the holidays, it's who's going to be invited to our table. I got to tell you something. You may know this. Uh, but I love your answer. We're going to go in a different direction tonight. It doesn't mean I don't love what you just said. I love what you said. We're, we're going to have a different angle tonight, but not mutually exclusive. But along, along the lines of what you said, there was a, a discussion amongst rabbis at some point to 
enact a new custom at the Passover Seder in response to the Holocaust. And the new custom would be to have an empty chair at the Seder. The empty chair would be symbolic of the six million. You know what the Rebbe said? Fill that empty chair with somebody who's not going to be at a Seder. That's a tribute to the six million. Don't have an empty chair at your Seder. Invite someone who's not otherwise at a Seder. Fill that chair. That's the greatest tribute. Am Yisrael Chai. Fill the chair. Invite someone in. I know that's not exactly what you said, but you reminded me of, of what the Rebbe said. It, it's a different perspective. Different perspective. What, what, what's a tribute? <laughs> that we're missing or that we're making sure to engage everybody? Anyway, it's a different perspective, but we're saying the Rebbe's perspective was different than what, what others were thinking. It's a powerful idea. Uh, but to your point, I, I think it's beautiful. And as the middle of the holidays, we're reminded, oh, by the way, don't just think about yourself. Remind, remember those that are in need. Like we do at the Seder. Anyone who's hungry, come and eat, etc. It's good. Let's, again, we'll go in a different direction tonight, but that, that doesn't take away from, from, from the idea. Text number two, Maimonides, I'm going to put up on the screen. And Elio, please, if you don't mind, please read text number two. Rambam describes these three agricultural mitzvot. When a person harvests, harvests their field, they should not harvest the entire field. Instead, they should leave a small portion of the standing grain at the end of the field. As the verse states, do not completely remove the grain in the corners of your field when reaping. This prohibition applies to one who reaps and one who uproots. The grain left standing is referred to as peah. Similarly, with regard to leket, leket? Yeah. leket, when one harvests or binds sheaves, they should not gather the stalks that fall during the harvest. Instead, leave them for the poor, as it is stated. You shall not gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leviticus 23:22. Similarly, if a person is binding sheaves of wheat into bundles and forgets one bundle, they may not go back and take it. All right, thanks. Those are the three mitzvahs. Peah, Leket, and Shecha. Number one, you have to leave the edge of the field. Number two, if anything falls down, if it falls, yeah, you got to leave it. And number three, if you forget a bundle... Don't go back. So it's a sign. It's a sign. By the way, it's the only mitzvah that you can do unintentionally. Hmm. Think about it. It's the only mitzvah that you can, the only way you can do that mitzvah of shikha is if you, if you forget. <laughs> right? Think about it. Well, if you remember, you might forget. Well, if you knew what you, the only way, most mitzvahs, we had this before in the medit, we talked about this in meditation from Sinai, the last Shalai course. Mitzvah striches kavana. Typically, a mitzvah needs kavana, which is intentionality. Right? You have to be mindful of the mitzvah. But here's an example of a mitzvah that if you were mindful about it, you don't get, it's no mitzvah. If you're mindful, like, oh, I'm going to leave this for the poor, then it's not the mitzvah forgetting. You have to, oh, the only way to fulfill the mitzvah of shikha is if you forgot, which means you weren't thinking about it because you can't be intending to forget because it's not forgetting. You, listen, hey, you can leave something for anyone anytime. That's not a problem. You can leave, you can... Cr- you can donate, you can give, that's not any time. The mitzvah of shikha is if you forgot. It only can happen without, without dasya. Well, in, in our time, wouldn't it just be doing it anonymously? It be the, the same? Anonymous, yeah. We'll talk a little bit about modern forms of this. Excellent point. Excellent point. How to give in a way that... Uh, maybe the, the, the greatest equivalent would be, equivalency would be if you pulled out your wallet and... A dollar bill or whatever, five dollar bill came, you know, flying out, and uh, flying fell out, <laughs> flying very dramatic, and then you didn't know that it came out, and you go on, you know, you just go on with your day, 
and somebody else finds it, someone, someone who is in need finds it, and they benefit from it, you get the mitzvah tzedakah even though you had no intention of giving, even though you might actually never know that you had it. That happens to me. I feel like that probably happens to me all the time. Like, I don't, I don't keep track of, like, bills that I have in my pocket. Am I the only guy? First of all, I don't usually have bills in my pocket, but if I did, I wouldn't know about it. <laughs> I wouldn't, like, pay exact. All right. Anyway, back to the story. It says that some great rabbis in the Talmudic era, they used to, when walking, they used to, like, just drop money for anyone who needed it. They used to just, whatever, not turn around, not see whoever, like, whoever gets it, gets it. But it wasn't. All right, so the question is like this. Question is, all, all fine and well, it's beautiful. The, the, the mitzvahs, the Torah's sensitivity toward the poor, not only sensitivity, care and compassion and sensitivity and, and, and commitment to take care of everyone, compassionate um, capitalism, it's so beautiful that if you're a farmer, there are these mandates you have, to, you have to give away some of your field to those that are in need. It's beautiful. The question is, why throw it in the middle of a holiday conversation? We're talking about the Yom, yom Tevim, we're talking about the holidays. Why are you telling me about agricultural mitzvahs? Take a look at Rashi text 3. Rashi addresses the question. Now, Rashi is awesome. We love Rashi, right? We heart Rashi, right? So we love, we love Rashi. Rashi is the bomb, Okay? Rashi addresses the question because he's Rashi. You know what Rashi stands for? His name wasn't Rashi. It's like it. People today are named Rashi. I know people whose names are Rashi. Yes, Rashi is an acronym. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchak. Shlomo the son of Yitzchak. They didn't have last names back then, so they used to call him like Schneerson. Schneerson is from the son of Schneer, right? That's like... But Yitz, that's a more modern, uh, you know, um, thing. But Yitzchaki, Shlomo Yitzchaki. His name was Shlomo Yitzchaki. Rashi, Ra, R, the R, for, right? Rabbi Shimon Yitzchaki, Rashi. Okay, so here's Rashi. I meant, huh? ha, I meant Rashban instead of... The Rashban. Rashbam? Oh, Rashbam, yes. The Rashbam is one of Rashi's grandsons, yes. Yes. The Rashbam, in fact, the Rashbam... Sometimes when Rashi's commentary is missing on the Talmud, there are a few places in Talmud where there's no Rashi's commentary for whatever reason. Either it went missing or he never wrote it. I'm not sure what the backstory is. I forgot already. But the Rashbam in the Talmud, the Rashbam is put in over there to cover for Rashi. You should know whenever somebody covers for Rashi, very rarely because it's missing, the commentary is much longer. One of Rashi's like signature moves is being able to take big ideas and write it very concisely. The rumor is... The tradition is, the legend is, that he worked on his commentary for years. And his, the, the work that he did was in cutting it down and cutting it down and cutting it down to the point that he distilled it into the bare minimum words, which again is rash. Oh, I spoke about this last week. Yeah. The Rebbe's uh, things. What's crazy, I got to tell you guys this. What's crazy about what I said last week, unbeknownst to me. Okay. One second. Hold on. One second. This blew my mind. It may blow your mind. It may not. Okay, every Shabbos here at Chabad in town, we print out something, a little uh, two-page thing called Here's My Story. Here's My Story. Okay? It's a personal story somebody's encounter with 
the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This is issue 46, this past Shabbos. I saw it, I see it Shabbos morning, and I read it. Rabbi Tuvia Blau is telling his story. A few stories. Turns out he's the guy, I misspoke, I said Ali Friedman. Turns out he's the guy that wrote the Klali Rashi. He's the guy that wrote, that compiled the, the principles of Rashi. And he's writing about, his sto- about this story. I, what I mentioned on Wednesday happened to be that, these, that it was published a few days later. Crazy, like, synchronicity. But I spoke also incorrectly because he writes, in 2018, a third expanded edition of Rashi's Principles appeared, the book that he wrote, enumerating no less than 620 interpretive rules, 620 rules of studying Rashi that he derived from the Rebbe's talks on Rashi. That is mind-boggling. Anyway, Rashi is so concise that you have to know how to study Rashi to really understand Rashi. But here we have Rashi explain. What were you saying? That's Rabbi Blau. Rabbi, well, one of, yeah, a Rabbi Blau in Israel. Yeah. So let's take a look. Yeah, here you can, you can take a look at this. Um, so let's take a look at Rashi, text number three. Sandrine, let's put it on the screen. Take it away, please. Rav Avdimi taught in the name of Rav Yosef. The Torah, the Torah plays the mitzvot of Leket, Shikha, and Pea in the middle of a discussion of temple services to teach that fulfilling these mitzvot properly is equivalent to building the temple and offering sacrifice. So listen to this. Rashi quotes <laughs> Rav Avdimi. Who, who said this in the name of Rav Yosef. So again, already we have names and there's a clue there, but we're not going to get into that tonight. It says, why were Leket, Shech, and Peah, the, these agricultural, the three agricultural misfot, why were they placed in the middle of a discussion of the temple services, the temple services uh, vis-a-vis the holidays? And you know, what the, you know what the lesson is? The moral of the story is that when you fulfill these mitzvot properly, when you give a part, when you leave a part of your field to the poor, when you leave the, par- the, the bundles that fell, when you leave the, the bundles that you forgot for the poor, then it's like you built a temple and you offered sacrifices. You with me? Mm-hmm. You give to someone in need and it's like you built a temple and you brought sacrifices. That's why this mitzvah, the agricultural mitzvah, or the three mitzvahs of the, of the farm are found in the middle of a discussion of the holidays, because the holiday discussion is about which sacrifices you bring on the holidays. And so therefore, the illusion is, the hint is, that if you fulfill these mitzvahs, if you share your blessings with others, guess what? It's like you built a temple and you brought sacrifices. We find this also stated in the Midrash, text 4. I'll read this. Listen to the story. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. This is shortly after the temples, the second temple's destruction. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai He's the guy that smuggled himself out of Jerusalem to speak to Vespasian. Right? The Talmud tells us a wild story. We don't have time to go through this right now. But Rabbi Yochum was like the leader of the generation. So when he was traveling from Jerusalem together with Rabbi Yeshua, another sage at that time, so they were traveling. Okay. When they passed the ruins of the temple, they passed by the ruins of the holy temple. Rabbi Yeshua said, Woe to us! The place where Israel's sins are forgiven is now destroyed. That was the place where we got atonement. We brought sacrifices. Now it's gone. Listen to this. Worry not, my son, said Rabbi Yochanan. There is a similar source of forgiveness. What, what are those or what is that source? Acts of kindness. In the Hebrew, it's gemilut chasadim. 
Gemilut chasadim, acts of kindness. Chesed, right? Chesed, you, if you see the Hebrew, uh, chesed. Gemilut chasadim means acts of kindness or kindnesses in the plural. Acts of kindness is the equivalent of a temple and sacrifices and atonement, very similar to what Rashi says over here, that when you give the leket, the shikh and the peya, when you give the food to the hungry and to the poor and to the needy and to the stranger, it's like you built a temple and you offered sacrifices. So again, we see this acts of kindness, acts of love, acts of generosity, acts of tzedakah are like bringing offerings in the temple. Okay, makes sense? Great. So we'd be very forgiven to think from these texts that now, nowadays, absent a temple, so what's the equivalent of bringing a sacrifice? We don't have a temple. We can't bring a sacrifice. We can't bring a carbon. So what's the equivalent? We just said in a few different places, Rashi on this week's Torah portion, the Medrash. So the equivalent is, Gemilu Chasadim, acts of kindness. Tzedakah, Chesed. Problem is, we know that there are, there's, uh, there are other things that are stated in our tradition to take the place of the sacrifices. Famously, what institution, what Jewish daily institution is said to replace the temple offerings? Help me out here. What do we do every day that replaces the offerings? We daven. We daven, we pray, right? I'm sure you've heard this before, that the three daily prayers correspond to the offerings that were brought throughout the day. We have a morning prayer called Shachrit that corresponds to the morning tummy, the morning daily offering. Then there was an afternoon daily offering every single day. Every single day there was, a, there was an afternoon offering that we have the afternoon prayers. And whatever wasn't finished burning on the altar during the day was burnt at night. So we have a nighttime uh, uh, service, prayer service called Mayrev. Shachris, Mincha, Mayrev. Morning, afternoon, and evening or night. We daven, we pray. And it, 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 it takes place of the, of, of, the, uh, of the sacrifices. So the question that we can ask is, so one second. So back in the day, they had a temple and they had offerings. And today we don't have a temple, we don't have offerings. So what are we doing to replace it? Are we praying or are we giving charity? What's, the, um, what's going on with that? Let's take a look at text number six. Text number six it describes what happens when a person brings an offering. Because in truth, if we're talking about now replacing the sacrificial service, well, what was the sacrificial service? What was it like? What was the experience like? You know, um, if you read the Torah, it seems like, okay, you did a sin, you made a mistake, you know, you did it by accident, let's say. So bring an animal and you're good to go. That's it. You bring an animal and then that's, that's how does that work? You sacrifice an animal and it fixes your blemish, that seems a little too, too easy. Ramban, Nachmanides, gives a powerful insight into this. He explains exactly what happens, what's supposed to happen internally when a person brings an offering or brought an offering back in the day in the temple. Take a look at text number six. Um, it's a long one. I'm going to read this one. Again, text six. We skipped text five. Text six, page 39. Human function is executed through the vehicles of thought, speech, and action. As such, God commanded that when a person sins and brings an offering, they should lay their hands upon the animal mirroring the evil action. Then they verbally confess, mirroring the evil speech. The animal's innards and kidneys are then burned in a fire, mirroring those limbs in the human body. 
that are known to be instruments of thought and desire in the human being. There's a, there's a notion that the kidneys, the kishkas, you ever hear somebody say, like, I feel it on my kishkas? Mm-hmm. Does anyone say that? No? All right. There's a phrase in, in Hebrew, which means that the kidneys give, give good advice, like maybe like a gut feeling. Maybe we would use that, uh, that language today. Like I have a gut, you know, I had a gut, gut instinct, that type of thing. So it's like this intuition that's coming from, coming from the kishkas, coming from the inside. So burning those parts of the animal are, are, are kind of parallel to the thought and desire within a human being. The animal's legs are burned, mirroring the sinner's hands and feet that did all the work. The animal's blood is then sprinkled upon the altar, which is analogous to the blood in the sinner's body. All of these acts, says Nachmanides, are performed so that the person, listen to this, they're done so that the person should realize that they have sinned against God with body and soul. Listen to this. Really, it should be their blood getting spilled. In other words, the person who committed the the offense. It should be their blood getting spilled, their body burned. Were it not for the loving kindness of the Creator who took a substitute and a ransom, namely this offering. The ant, I mean, I could say poor animal. The animal has to die on someone else's. Okay, all right, that's, that's a good question. I don't know that I'm going to answer that sufficiently, but, but that's, that's the perspective. The animal's blood is in place of the sinner's blood, its life in place of the sinner's life, and the chief limbs of the offering in place of the chief parts of the sinner's body. Though these are worthy words that appeal to the heart as do words of Agada. In other words, this is the deeper message, the deeper narrative, the deeper story behind the offering. So we, we, he, gave it, he gives the example of the sin offering. person brings a sin offering because they messed up, they did something wrong. They did something, a grievance against God Almighty. And so, so you think it's easy, you just bring an animal, ah, we're done. It's like, this, it's like the equivalent of showing up to Rosh Hashanah and going boom, 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 we're done, right? No, there needs to be an internal process, an authentic internal process. And Ramban says, when you bring the animal and hands-on, you are engaged or you are watching what happens to the animal, it can't not but affect you in an internal way. And, say, and to remind the person, it, it, it almost necessarily is reminded, look what's happening to the animal. That really should be me. And by undergoing that process, a person takes it seriously. What they did, what they did was a problem. What they did meant something. And they'll be more motivated to fix it and to turn over a new leaf. The point is that a carbon, a sacrifice, is meant to be an introspective experience. What today, what Jewish practice today is very introspective? Help me out here. Which, I mean, we said it before, went through the same Q&A before, right? Or the, what, which Jewish ritual daily experience is likewise very introspective? Pray, well, but in general, tefillah, prayer. Prayer is a time that we think about ourselves, we think about our spiritual standing, we think about where we've fallen short, we commit to good things. Prayer is a time of introspection, which is why, again, it's why in our tradition, in many places it says that prayers, modern prayers today, take the place of the ancient sacrifices. But all of this begs the question, because our Rashi, in this week's Torah portion, and the Medrash that we quoted before with Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yeshua, they seem to say that, no, 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 no. The, the temple sacrifices today are replaced not by prayer, but by tzedakah, by acts of kindness. So the question is, will the real replacement please stand up? Is it prayer or is it tzedakah? Is it introspective service or is it giving 
something away to someone else. What is the true replacement? In truth, both are replacements. Obviously, the answer is both because there is an introspective element to the sacrifices that, that's, that's covered, if you will, on some level by the introspection of prayer. But there's another element when it comes to the sacrifices. When it comes to the sacrifices, what are you doing? Think about it. You take an animal, and what are you doing? You're giving it away. You have an animal, right? Or you bought an animal, or you have an animal, and you are giving it away. You're giving it to the Kohen. You're giving it to the temple. You're giving it to God. You're giving it away. And thus, that element of giving up something, giving up something of your own to somewhere else, right? Giving up something of your own to someone else. In a very obvious way, that is what is captured, that is mirrored by the modern experience of acts of kindness, of tzedakah. It's giving away something that is very deep, deeply connected to a person that is what is covered by tzedakah, and that is what satisfies the, the, uh, the sacrifices in the, in the modern era. So again, there's an element of the sacrifices that's all about introspection and looking at myself in the mirror, and that's covered by prayer. But there's an element of the sacrifices that's about giving away, giving something up. And which mitzvah today is about giving something up? Tzedakah is, what, is, is when we give something up. Take a look at how the author Rebbe explains the experience of tzedakah in text number seven. Really powerful, powerful um, words about the mitzvah of, of tzedakah, of giving tzedakah. The mitzvah of tzedakah is given disproportionate importance in all of Jewish literature, he says. In other words, tzedakah is such a big mitzvah. It's praised so highly in Jewish literature with such statements as it is equivalent to all other mitzvot, Talmud. To wit, the Jerusalem Talmud uses the term mitzvah without any qualifier as a reference to tzedakah, as was the common practice then. In other words, if you say to somebody, hey, did you do the mitzvah today? Without specifying which one, it's understood that mitzvah means tzedakah. This is because tzedakah, which we typically translate as charity, is considered to be the most important practical mitzvah. Why is this so? Take a look at the Alter Rebbe's explanation. This is chapter 37 of Tanya. He says, the purpose of every mitzvah is to transform the person and carry over his or her very life to God. It's about giving up oneself to God. Now, there isn't a mitzvah in which the person's life and energy is more invested than the mitzvah of tzedakah. Think about it. With any other mitzvah, only one single part of the person is invested in the action. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Okay? When you wrapped tefillin, yeah, how much of you is invested in the mitzvah? Your arm, your other arm, right? Your head, okay? When you light Shabbat candles, how much of you is invested in the mitzvah? Your hands, right? I mean, you bought the candle. I mean, what are you? it's... What's, but, but tzedakah is different. Take a look at this. By contrast, a person invests their entire being into the money they earn. So when they go ahead and give it away to tzedakah, their entire being is invested in the mitzvah. Again, understand the profundity of what he's saying. How do you get money? Tzedakah is giving away money, giving money to those in need. How did you get the money? You worked. How did you work? With every part of your body. Yet you woke up in the morning, you went to work, blood, sweat, and tears to earn the money. And then what did you do with the money? Some of it at least. You gave it to tzedakah. 
That money that you gave away represents your core energy. You gave away, I'm not going to say gave away everything, but you gave of everything of yourself. It's, the, it's a complete transference of energy from person into mitzvah. But what about someone who doesn't enjoy their work? Maybe somebody didn't invest all their energy into earning a living. Maybe when they worked, they just pressed button. Like we say, wrapping tefillin is just by hands. Maybe you just pressed the button all day. Button, 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 and wasn't invested. How can we argue that this person, that they are completely invested in that money? So he answers, with that money, they could have bought anything for their own personal use. Theoretically. Right? With that money, could have bought anything for themselves. So by giving it away, they are indeed giving their very life away for God. Thus, our sages said that tzedakah hastens the redemption. In other words, giving tzedakah brings Mashiach. For one donation sublimates, elevates, refines and perfects so much of the donor's energy and life, something that would not have been, something that would have been impossible even after many other mitzvot. So if we're thinking of, of a mitzvah in the context of, of, of um, conversion of energy, conversion of personal energy into mitzvah experience, there is no mitzvah that is com- as completely efficient as tzedakah. Because most mitzvot only take a little bit of a person's energy and transfer it into the mitzvah. A little bit of energy. Tzedakah, it's the whole energy of a person. Because either they invested their whole energy into the work, or they could have used that money to buy something that would you satisfy their own, the whole body. Instead, they gave it away. They gave that to tzedakah. They gave it to a good cause or to a needy person or whatever it is. And now that whole energy of the person is being transferred into a holy space, into a mitzvah. It is the ultimate form of giving. It is the ultimate form, if you will, of sacrifice. So the Rebbe connects the dots, and he explains why it is that tzedakah today is analogous to the sacrifices of of yesteryear. Okay, so just to connect all the dots in case anyone has any, um, um, in case it's somehow not buttoned up, let's look at text number 8 to see how the Rebbe writes this out clearly. Okay, the comparison of gifts of the poor to offering sacrifices, right? In other words, the, the, uh, the comparison, right? The relationship between tzedakah today and temple sacrifices of old is obvious. When a person offers a sacrifice, they give something of themselves to God. And the same thing occurs when donating gifts to the poor. The donor gives away their possessions to another person by God's command. So very simply, a a karban, a sacrifice, is giving something up to God. And tzedakah is giving something up to another person by God's command, essentially giving something up for God. All of this hopefully makes sense, and all of this hopefully resonates, and all of this hopefully uh, inspires us to understand the true beauty and value from a Kabbalistic perspective, from a mystical perspective, from a philosophical perspective. The value of giving tzedakah. Giving tzedakah is not just, you know, I gave some money. Giving tzedakah is transferring the entirety of your energy and all the work that you did and all the effort that you put in to, earn, to go to work, to earn the money. It's now, even though it's a representation of, it's not the whole amount necessarily, a representation, but it elevates the entire work experience and all that energy that went inside of it and all the education and all the training and all the hours and Everything is now being transferred into that incredible mitzvah. Beautiful. However, we still, we're still going to have a question. This is not the end of the class. By no means. There's one 
additional idea that's a major idea that I wish to develop right now. And in order to get into this additional idea, we need to look at a very unique type of carbon. Carbon is offering or sacrifice in, uh, in Hebrew. We need to look at a very interesting type of offering, which is known as the wood offering. Carbon ha'etzim, the wood offering or the wood sacrifice. Text number nine, Maimonides. Rambam describes what exactly the wood sacrifice was. What's the wood, sa wood sacrifice? There's an animal sacrifice. There's a flower offering. There's wine libations. You pour wine by the altar. But what's the wood sacrifice? Were you offering wood? What does that even mean? All right, take a look at text number nine. I'm going to put it up and I'm going to read it. Maimonides says, um, here we go. What was the day of the wood sacrifice? Certain families had a fixed time at which they would go out to the forest and bring wood for the pile on the altar. On the day designated for each particular family to bring their wood sacrifice, they would also bring voluntary burnt animal sacrifices. This occasion was called the Day of the Wood Sacrifice, and it was celebrated as a festival for the family bringing the wood. On this day, the family was forbidden to deliver mournful eulogies for the deceased or fast, and they were also not allowed to perform work on this day. This was the custom. It was like a holiday for that family, the day that they brought the wood for the altar. That was their day, their day of the wood sacrifice. Even a private individual, and it was not, a, not an official family unit, who donated wood or logs for the pile on the altar was forbidden to deliver mourning, mourn, mournful eulogies for the deceased or fast, and they were also not allowed to perform work on this day. This was the custom. What we see here is that the occasion of bringing the wood to the, to the altar, donating the wood, was not just called the wood donation, but it's called the wood sacrifice. It's called the carbon. Now, sacrifice usually implies taking an animal, etc. We're calling the donation of the wood a wood sacrifice. That's a little bit of a strange phrase. Question number one. Question number two, we see here that it was a day of a celebration. It was like a holiday. It was like a mini holiday for the family or for the individual with a prohibition against fasting or eulogizing. So clearly, there's some sort of celebration going on with this donation of the wood or with this sacrifice of the wood. And the question is, why is it so joyous? We don't find in Jewish literature that when a person would bring a traditional animal sacrifice, for example, that it would become a holiday. They brought a sacrifice, they're in, they're out. But some, for some reason with the wood, right, for some reason with the wood, there was a, a holiday or a celebration associated with the donation of the wood. This whole wood donation sacrifice experience thus evokes questions. Okay? So... To understand the secret of the wood offering, the wood sacrifice, we need to understand the truth about sacrifice itself. And I'm going to get into a truth that I think is going to resonate with everyone. Even if we don't like to always think about it, but it's the truth. And that is, it feels good sometimes to sacrifice. It feels good to sacrifice. It satisfies a part of ourselves that, that wants to feel like it's given up something for a greater cause, right? Doesn't it feel good to do something for the cause? It does. It feels good. It creates a certain sense of pleasure. I feel good when I do something for the cause. In other words, the ego of a human being is a very tricky thing. And even in a situation of sacrifice, 
the ego can somehow elbow its way in and say, hey guys, look what we did. We just sacrificed. Boom. <laughs> Mic drop. Guess what I did today? I volunteered. Boom. Right? I gave up my time. Mic drop. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this cynically. I'm just saying that is how pernicious, perhaps, is that the right term? The evil inclination, not the evil, the ego is. It's not evil. It's a mitzvah. Let's, let's be very clear here. This is only good stuff. But, you know, chassidus gets involved in the, the intricacies of good, right? Good, but hold on. Is there a trace of selfishness, a trace of ego? If a person gives, right, altruistically, or if a person gives, but it becomes a very self-satisfying experience, then it's not perfectly devoid of ego. Now, does that make it a bad experience? God forbid. Is it negative? Of course not. But is it 100% a sacrifice? If we define sacrifice as giving, giving up for God, for the cause, as we're giving up but feeling good about giving up, it's almost like we're giving but we're also taking at the same time. It's like we're giving with one hand but then grabbing again with the other hand. So it's a little bit of a mixed experience. Again, it's all good, it's all a mitzvah, but subtly there's a little bit of, of grabbing, a little bit of, of, of ego enjoyment in the sacrifice. That's true with all the mitzvahs. Think about a, a sin offering. person did something wrong. person committed a sin. So the Torah says you bring this type of animal, you know, very specific formula for what to do. And a person does it. And then they studied the Ramban we had before. Nachmani says, you have to look at the animal and think about that should, happen, that should be happening to me. And a person really gets into it and starts crying and it's a whole experience. And you know what? You know what happens that day when they get home? Ah, oh, I had a good experience today. I brought a sin offering. I feel great. <laughs> I feel great. It's like the, a weight is off my shoulders. I feel fantastic. I gave the sin offering. It's wonderful. Okay. Again, it's not a bad thing. But it turned from a sacrificial thing, from a giving thing, into a little bit of a, a take, a little, little slight, very subtle taking thing. Again, very subtle. So the Rebbe says this. Which, mitz, which carbon, which offering, did not have an ego experience with it? Even a sin offering could, be an e- could, could, could satisfy the ego. Look what I did, right? I atoned for my sin. I cried. It was a good cry. I cried. Which, which offering, which sacrifice? had no trace of ego at all? The wood offering. Why the, of course, because we brought it up, right? Of course, that's what we're talking about. Why the wood offering? Because when a person brought the wood, or the family brought the wood, they didn't even know if it was going to be used. It might be that there was plenty of wood. Because people brought wood every day. Could be that there was plenty of wood, and this wood would never see the light of day, or the fire on the altar, as it were. It could be that, and this person wouldn't know. When you bring your sin offering and you go through that experience and it feels good to be atoned, again, it it feels good. But when you bring a wood offering to the temple, there's no no satisfaction. Oh, oh, look at that. That's my wood. You have no idea if that's your wood. And it's not yours. It's for the community. You don't even know when it's going to be used or if it's going to be used. So it's, it's an act of sacrifice devoid of ego. It's an act of sacrifice devoid of self-satisfaction. This is how the Rebbe explains it. Take a look at text number 11. The Rebbe explaining the, the wood offering. The actual wood donated to the temple was not a sacrifice, 
Rather, it was a necessary element for the fire that burned on the altar, which in turn consumed the sacrifices. The actual sacrifices that burned on the wood were not the property of the wood donor. Rather, they were the property of the entire Jewish people. So this guy who brought the wood or the family that brought the wood, it wasn't really a sacrifice. It was for the sacrifices. And they didn't even know if it was going to be used for the sacrifices, as I said. And when the sacrifices were brought, it's not their sacrifice. It's the person who brought it sacrifice. So what, what, what's their role? They're just a wood donor. There's an even greater observation to point out. This donation was performed with great joy. So much so that on the day that, the, that each family donated, they considered it a holiday. Why? Because it was pure giving. Now, I know the contradiction. Pure giving, so why were they celebrating? Okay, I don't have a good answer for that. But the point is that it was the pure giving that really brought out, that really brought out the, um, the depth of joy, the depth of the soul's joy. You know, Maimonides talks about, now let's take it away from the wood and talk about us, you and I, and giving, and forms of giving. Maimonides famously talks about different levels. He talks about, I believe, 11 or so levels of giving tzedakah. Different levels of charity. And he says the highest, the highest form of charity is giving someone a job. You know the whole adage, give a person a fish to eat for a day, teach a person how to fish to eat for a lifetime? So giving a person a job or a loan to start a business, he says, is the highest form of charity. Now typically the way we understand this is because you honor the dignity of the individual, of the, of the recipient. Instead of giving them a handout, you are allowing them to stand up on their own two feet and feel like, they're being treated, you know, like, uh, like a partner in this experience. That's the way we typically understand it. But listen to this twist. I'm hoping this comes across clearly. I'm praying that this is, this is received um, uh, accurately. The Rebbe has a twist on this. It's not the reason why this is the highest level of tzedakah. is not just because it honors the recipient. It's also because it doesn't allow the ego of the giver to be, to be inflamed. Because think about it. If you give a person something, you say, I gave that to you. But if you give a loan and you get repaid, <laughs> it turns out you didn't give anything. If you give a person a job and then they work and you pay them for their work, so what they give you? You didn't give them anything. They gave you work for the money. Are you with me in the difference? Does that make sense? In other words, when you give a person a job, you didn't give them. I know you gave them. But I'm saying you didn't give away. It's harder for the ego to feel, to, to pat itself on, its, on, its, on the back, so to speak. It's a little bit more altruistic than the typical form of giving, which is giving in the context of a handout. So giving a handout could evoke or invoke the ego a little bit more. Giving the job or giving the loan and getting paid back or getting work in return for the money, that, that, that engages the ego less and thus, it is a pure giving experience. So according to Rambam, why is it the high, again, according to this interpretation, why is it the highest level of giving? Because it's a pure expression of giving that's pure giving and not taking in return. It's pure giving. It's pure selflessness. It's pure altruism. This is the way, this is the way that we can frame the, uh, the highest level of giving. And this is why. Leket, Shecha, and Peah, coming back full circle to our Torah portion. This is why the three agricultural mitzvot are inserted in the middle of the holiday offerings, in the middle of a conversation of the holidays. This is why these three mitzvot specifically are associated with the sacrifices, because a sacrifice was meant to be altruistic, only about God. 
And these three mitzvot, these three tzedakah mitzvot, are very much about altruistic giving. Take a look at text 15a. Here's how the Rebbe explains this. We're skipping a few texts. 15a. The common denominator between the three mitzvot, the three agricultural mitzvot of leket, shechan, peah, the donations from the field, is not only in the sense that the donor gives away a personal item. Rather, the donation is quite perfect, for the donor has absolutely no personal gain from it. He or she is not allowed to choose to whom the donation will go. Right? Part of the satisfaction of giving is that you know where it's going and you feel good about where it's going to. But in this case, when you leave a corner of your field, this is before security cameras, right? So this is before you can like monitor what's going on, right? When you leave a corner of your field and someone comes in the middle of the night and, and gets some food, or you drop bundles and you didn't pick them up, or you forgot some, some sheaves and you didn't pick them and you didn't go back to get them, and somebody else comes and gets them, you don't know what happened to it. Who got it? What did they use it for? Was it an animal? I mean, you, who knows? Anything could have happened. So there's less of a chance for the patting oneself on the back, and there's more of a chance of pure selfless giving. It's a mitzvah to give, I'm giving. What do I get in return? Do I get the satisfaction of the nachas? I don't get nachas. You know, again, nachas, I'm using the word nachas in the, in the context of, you know, when I give and I see the fruits, I see, I see when I invest and I see the growth, ah, oh, nachas. And I just have to clarify once again, I, I said this a bunch of times, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good, on, on, a nor, on a normal day, we would say that's what we're supposed to do. But tonight, we have another lesson. Tonight's lesson is, but think about those times that we invest and we don't see the fruits of our labor. Think about those times. And think about how that stretches the muscle of giving even more. Because the muscle of giving appreciates the feedback loop. When the, there's no feedback loop, it's harder to keep on giving. You gave and you didn't get the feedback. Should I give again? That's what the Torah says. Leket, Shechah, and Peah. These three mitzvot, where you leave it in the field and you don't know what happens to it. The circuit never closes. You never get that, that adrenaline or that uh, whatever, the chemical rush of seeing someone enjoy it and someone's face light up. You don't get that feeling. The wood offering in the temple, same thing. You bring a carbon, you bring an offering, there's a whole experience behind it. You gave the wood, what happened to the wood? I don't know. Did someone use it? What, what offering was it used for? You bring an offering, you know exactly what happened, you were right there. You bring the wood, you give tzedakah, you give it to a poor person, you give food to a poor person in need, their face lights up, Gavaldic feels, feels great. You give, you invest in, in a good cause, fantastic. You leave something in your field and it disappears overnight. That circuit never closes. It's harder to give. But because of that, there's a value in that experience. Because it's harder to give without the feedback that makes that type of giving all the more meaningful. I, far be it for me to say, that we should only seek gifts that, don't, that we don't see the nachas, that we don't get nachas from. Because that's not, first of all, that's not true. We should give and see nachas. Not a, nothing wrong with that. And also because those are needs. We need to give to those that need that are right in front of us. 
But there's something special also about giving in such a way where we don't get that feedback, where it's not about what we got from it or what we saw from it. It's not about seeing the results. And this is the lesson that we can walk away with. You know, all of us, whether it's about money or, or time or a caring heart or a supportive shoulder, all of us give to others. All of us invest our time, our effort, our energy, our hearts and souls in others. It's easier to invest when you see a return on the investment. It's harder to invest when you don't see the fruits of your labor. It's, hard, it's easy to get frustrated. I'm investing, investing, investing. I'm not seeing any growth. Imagine a farmer planting, planting, planting. He doesn't see the growth. Right? This farmer is leaving these things in the field. I don't know what's happening to it. Maybe the wolves. I don't know. Maybe the bears. Like what's, we don't know what's going on. It's easier to give, it's easier to invest when you see the return. But in life, it doesn't always work like that. In life, sometimes we encounter the child, you know, when we're investing in the child and we're educating the child and we're putting time and effort and we're not seeing, we're not seeing exactly the results that we would like to see. Sometimes we're investing in a friendship and we don't see the feedback that we would like to see. We're investing, we're giving so much time and we're not getting we feel like we're putting into it, but we're not getting out from it. Sometimes in volunteering effort, whatever, come up with your own examples. I don't want to limit it to any examples, but think about it in your own life, an area in which you've invested and maybe you haven't seen the return. And the typical response is, nah, forget it. All right, they don't work. They don't work out. The Torah reminds us this week about Leket, Shecha, and Peah. Reminded about the three agricultural mitzvot, the ones that you leave in the field. You don't know what happens. You invested so much by leaving it in the field, you left yourself out there. And then what happened? You know, it's nice when there's a happy ending to a story. But in life, most stories don't, I can't say most, many stories don't have happy endings. In fact, many stories don't have endings. We don't know what happens to many stories. And in those cases, it's easy to cut our losses and run and say, you know what? I'm not going to invest in this friendship. I'm not seeing what I, what I want from it. I'm not going to invest in this child. I'm not seeing, you know, what I want from it, from him or her. A teacher in a class, a parent and a child, I mean, I don't, I don't think this is an example, but let's say a teacher in a class. Yeah, you have 25 kids in a class. So where are you going to invest your time? Probably in the students that are you know, giving you feedback. What about the students that are just not, not paying attention, that you don't think are paying attention? It's easy to say to oneself, all right, so I won't invest. So what, what, what am I giving already? Why should I give? Comes along the turn and says, no. You got to give energy in those areas that you might not ever know the end of the story. When they gave the wood to the temple, they didn't know the end of the story. There's no way to track that wood. Was it used on Yom Kippur for the atonement offering on behalf of the entire Jewish people? Was it used for a personal sin offering, somebody who really needed a pick-me-up? Was it used for a Thanksgiving offering, someone who just got rescued from, from incredible danger? Was it used for a daily Talmud offering, a daily offering on behalf of the Jewish people? Or did it end up not being used at all? Did it end up in the scrap heap of wood that never ended up in the altar? The person who donated the wood will never know. But that didn't deter them from giving. In fact, 
it was the greatest holiday. Because giving without expectation of reward, giving even when you don't see the end of the story, even when you know you're not going to see the end of the story, that's pure giving. I want to conclude with the story. The story goes that a young boy once walked by an old man planting a carob tree. And it, I don't know my trees, by the way. So I'm going to say this definitively, but if it's not accurate, then don't worry about it. Not, there's things carob tree. Carob. Yeah. Carob. Not carob. <laughs> carob. <laughs> carob trees take many years to grow. Again, if I'm wrong, it's okay. Carob trees take many years to grow. This young boy asked this old man, he says, why are you planting the carob tree? With all due respect, you're never going to see it. never going to see it. You're never going to eat from it. He looks at the young boy with a wistful smile, and he says, look around at all these other trees. I can enjoy these trees because somebody planted them. We have to plant even if we don't see the return because we have a promise from on high that hard work and investment and sincerity never goes unfulfilled. Maybe not today like the movie, right? Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday and for the rest of your life. I'm paraphrasing. But at some point, the investment will hit. At some point, the fruits will blossom. At some point, the results will come in. Let that not deter us. Let, 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 let not the gap between investment and realization, let, not, let that gap not deter us from action. Let us commit and let us follow through with giving and teaching and inspiring without the need to see the feedback. If we see it, great. If the story comes to a conclusion, if we get, you know, if it, if, if, if it comes back to us in a, in a beautiful way, fantastic. But even if not, dayenu, because we gave. Thank you very much for joining us tonight for Torah study. Thank you for joining me. Thank you all for being here together. I hope that this was meaningful and I hope that it resonated and I hope that uh, you can apply it somehow to your life because every one of us has situations where we give and we're just not feeling it. Keep on giving. Keep on giving. It's the right thing. All right. Any questions or comments? Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Donna. Questions or comments? Checking in with the online crew, in-person crew. Someone told me, because I was looking at my phone once, you get the, the root of the chesed anyway for the intention. Wait, one more time. Nice. You get the schut of the chesed for the intention. You get the merit of the act of kindness because of the intention itself, exactly. Even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't play out exactly as if, right. What happens when you're drinking tea and you look down at the end of the class and there's a bug Anyway, that's also okay. That's See that? Doesn't, it's not about awareness, huh? I'm pretty sure that that's not, that yeah, that's not that. But you didn't drink oh, it. No, it's on the side of the cup, but whatever. Okay. What's that bug doing? I found a way to, um, <laughs> yeah. I found a way to um, leave the corner of a field empty. When I go to the vending machines in my, my building, 
I put in a couple dollars and then I read the change and the coin thing at the bottom. I love so, that. In other words, I'm eating my candy bar, but I'm leaving a corner. I love that. I love that. Just tell us your building and we'll collect the loose change. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Athena that's beautiful. Seriously, that's beautiful. I love that. A modern day, day paya. That's beautiful. If our, if more people were like Adina Malka, right? And I know we're all like, right? Because we're all generous. But if, think about a world in which the concern is not, how do I get something from the other? But how can I give to the other? That's, that's Mashiach. That's Mashiach world. A world of Mashiach is a world of giving and generosity and love and kindness. And I love the fact that you don't know the story. The end of the story. That's the best thing. I know. <laughs> so, it could go the other way. Because when you don't know the end of the story, then you can imagine it ha- some person that, then, then, it, then the story can really get juicy. <laughs> By the way, I feel like something just happened with me where I did something or taught something and then something and someone and somewhere and then someone let me know of something that happened and it was like, I wanted to give you feedback because you would probably never know the end of the story. I have no idea what it was, though, because I can't recall what it was. But I, I remember that somebody completed a circuit of a very long, maybe, does anybody, was anybody at the, do you remember something? Somebody said something online? Was it anybody, anybody here that said something? I, Sandrine, you remember something like that? I feel, somebody told me a story recently. I, I, I usually am a pretty good listener. I just, I can't remember in the moment. But somebody completed that circuit. And it's like, how many, th- okay, let's just be honest. How many th- good things have we done that, that have had a major impact that we've never found out about? I, I would say countless things. Countless things that we've done or said that have impacted others that never got back to us. Don't be deterred. If, if, you've, if, you have, if through life you haven't gotten a lot of feedback, keep on doing the good stuff. That's the message from tonight. Keep on giving that wood offering. Don't be, it's nice to see the feedback. But you know what? There's something... I, I, I hate comparing levels of tzedakah. It's all good. Giving is good. Um, so it's, not, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a race to the top. But it's nice to get feedback. It's also nice even when there's no feedback. And like Adina Maka said, you can create, or I said in your name, Adina Maka, you can create your own story, which is maybe even more fun than the real story. <laughs> you can like create a, create a happy ending, right? That's like marvelous. Um, I have to try to remember that story that happened with me. Somebody, oh man. All right. It will come back to me or it won't. Or it won't. All right. Uh, great to see you all. What's coming up? Oh, quick announcement. Monday night. Jewish Wisdom to Heal the Earth, the Rabbi and the Environmentalist. I'll be presenting with Joanna Koblifker, and she is um, involved in, um, in environmental um, uh, uh, organizations locally and, and bringing together different faiths and organizations to be more environmentally friendly. And I am going to be presenting with her. She's going to be presenting... Um, and I'll, she'll be presenting um, ideas that relate to Judaism and science, and I'll be presenting some ideas related to Judaism and the, um, and the environment, and it's going to be a beautiful event. Monday evening, 7.30 p.m., we have a bit of a reception, followed by the talks. Join us right here. When I say right here, I mean like right over here.
Monday night, 7.30. Tomorrow at noon. Are you going to Zoom it? I don't believe it's Zoom. I don't believe it's on Zoom. Are you going to live stream it? So I'm not sure. If you please remind me to look into it. Um, the, 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 we're co-producing this event, and the, uh, the decision was, was made to do it in person. So let me see if we can squeeze some sort of uh, virtual option in. Mm -hmm. But as of right now, it's, um, it's in person. Your question was, tomorrow noon? yes, okay, good, yes, tomorrow noon, JLI, the Thursday edition, with lunch, bagels, lox, cream cheese, veggies, coffee, tea, right here, 12 o'clock, the course is called Beyond Right, and it is a marvelous class. I know some of you took the Tuesday night class last night on Zoom, we have the Thursday in-person class, the jokes are two days riper. <laughs> I don't know if a ripe I don't know if a ripe joke is good. I don't know if a ripe joke sounds good. Anyway, the jokes are are uh, are aged like fine wine. So if even if you heard the first class, come again. Yeah, good. Looking forward to seeing you. All right, I think that's it, friends. Lila Tov, have a wonderful evening, and don't forget, even if we haven't received the feedback, let's keep on going. Let's keep on giving. Let's keep on doing, and it's going to make an impact. It does make an impact. All right. See you guys. Take care, Lila Tove. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.